Hi everybody, this is Loretta from Next Sequence and you're listening to the Next Sequence podcast. More and more tech bio founders out there like myself before going from entrepreneur to investor have been trying to bring in computing technologies to biotech. In this show, I sit down with some of the most impressive founders of what we call now tech bio to learn more about their journey and inspire other founders or wannabe founders to follow in their tracks. TechBio is all about fixing the problem of the world, and the world needs more and more TechBio founders. So, listen up. Hi guys, welcome to this new Tech Bio episode by Next Sequence, and we are super excited here today to be welcoming Cecilia Manduka. This is the first for us. As you know, we've been mostly inviting founders talking about their own experience and journey on building the most disruptive tech bio startup out there. And we are super excited to be welcoming Cecilia as associate at Talis Capital. Hi, Cecilia. Hi. Hi, Loretta. Thank you for having me here. So super excited because we talked a couple of weeks ago and I realized just while we were talking that, okay, I needed to record that because it was so amazing. But let's talk first about you as a person. What is your background and where you're coming from? Of course. Um, so I'm originally from Italy, um, the north part of Italy between Milan and Venice. Um, and I've been working in VC for three years today, actually. Um, my background is um, maybe slightly, slightly different than the traditional path to VC. I co-founded a company with some of my friends uh, when I was at high school, which was a really good fun and a really great learning experience. Um, I ran the company for a few years um, and then I left to follow what's always been a huge passion for me, which is environment and climate. Um, after studying environment and development here in London, I went and worked for an NGO for a little bit, but I realized that that wasn't really the right fit for me. I've always been um, a techno-optimist and I'm a huge believer in um, like the power of technology to build and bring us a much better world. And I'm also a really impatient person, so I really wanted to work close to organizations that are breaking things really fast and they are disrupting uh, the status quo. So I, I joined a, a company or startup here in London in the energy space, very early stage. And uh, I was with the company until we raised our Series A with BP, which was very interesting. And it was um, five years ago when climate tech wasn't really a thing. It was still called tech and there was far less capital into it. Um, and then I left and spent a couple of years helping out uh, UK startups with their innovation funding and their R&D grants and non-dilutive capital. Um, I then joined Talis Capital three years ago and um, I spent quite a lot of my time here focusing on climate and sustainability, as well as the tech bio, sim bio uh, space. My, my journey into, you know, the bio world is slightly different. I don't come from a strictly like research and scientific background. But when I joined Thales, I, I started 
looking a lot at the climate space and how can we match and bring together venture capital opportunities within climate and how do we buy the right technologies that are actually going to help us get to net zero. What I found um, in this journey was there, there was a lot of development on the software side, which was interesting, but to me didn't really crack the impact side. And then I was seeing this emergence of really great technologies that could disrupt um, very polluting industries from textiles to food, new materials. And the common theme underneath all of that was synthetic biology. So <laughs> I got really, really curious and went down the rabbit hole, drank all the Kool-Aid about synthetic biology um, and discovered not only the really great application that this technology can have within um, the, the climate space, but also the, the tech bio side. So the new kind of critical infrastructure that can be built and needs to be built to, to allow the shift from discovery-based biology to engineer-based biology. And so at the moment, I'm spending a lot of my time looking into, as I said, application of Symbio for, uh, for climate, but also this new tech stack that's getting built that will enable this new um, industry to flourish and thrive. It's very amazing because you said um, I was not coming from traditional uh, VC, but yet I had an interest in climate. And so uh, obviously uh, joining Talis, I started by focusing on that. I think in a weird way, uh, you already were focusing on, on climate, but you didn't really realize it uh, entirely because you were working for Waltaware, which was a company focusing on mm -hmm. energy fitness. And going from that to, to, to that trajectory in itself, for me, feels totally consistent. There's one thing that you said where I'm just like, okay, I need to dig a little bit more on this, is you said you discovered that there was this whole activities in climate, but it was all on software and it was not reconnected really with uh, the infrastructure need and the actual application needs uh, from the other side of the coin for climate startups. So can you dig a little bit on that because I'm kind of surprised and not surprised at the same time. So I want to know more what you meant by there was a lot of activity on software in climate tech. Yeah, I think it's more from, from a VC perspective. I think a lot of um, the initial climate companies that kind of got funded by generalist VCs in the last few years um, were companies that were leveraging software solutions for climate, which there's definitely a need. There's definitely a need to measure carbon, to have um, platforms that allow you to purchase high quality carbon credits. There's definitely a need for a lot of these applications, um, but that's not whole. Um, if you think about climate and impact, there is um, there's about the vast majority of carbon reduction is comes from changing and switching to renewable energy comes from the mobility sector, comes from agriculture, food production, uh, supply chains, materials, heavy industries. So if we concentrate a lot of the capital just towards the software solution, then there's a mismatch between what they can help, how much <laughs> emissions they can help produce versus the whole that we need to. There are, of course, there, there is, of course, a lot of other activity um, from, from the funder's perspective and from like, the disruptive technology that have, that's happening in the energy space, in the mobility, and in a lot of other um, areas. But from like a generalist 
VC perspective, I could see a lot of the funding just going towards software, um, which which is not representative of everything that we need. I think from yeah, I totally got it. At the same time, um, it's perfect timing because I saw an article coming from Sifted this week about uh, the boom on infrastructure startups, and it's super interesting because. Uh, it's counterintuitive because traditionally uh, hardware is very hard uh, to finance. A lot of the, the VCs tend to stay away from hardware because of the complexity of the implementation and the required needs. There is basically a very high capex price to pay in hardware solution and infrastructure in general when you think about it. Yeah, I I tend to agree. We are, we are investors with Alice in, in two great companies in um, the climate space. One is a French company called Insect, who is about to be one of the largest protein yes. producers in the world, um, which definitely has required a lot of capex because they're building the largest of its kind plant, um, and another, <laughs> which is which is amazing. Yeah. And obviously, there are some some trade offs. I don't think every climate idea every industry needs venture money um but there are sometimes these um these matches that happens between great impact and great potential returns so that's where we like to play i think sometimes capex can be um can be a huge mode if you think about insect or if you think about companies like sologen who are um, doing green chemicals, which are uh, which are great, um, and they're building some really large plants in Texas. That's also that's also mod, um, but of course it also reduces the amount of companies that can be the amount of huge companies that can be built in the space. So we will always try to think about that trade off, and when investing in kind of capex companies, we we also think about whether it. The innovation that they're bringing uh, changes the margins profile of the industry. So, can they can they do things more efficiently? Can they be like a more efficient DEXA producers? Yeah, um, what you just said is actually maybe uh, one of the core critical points for me. Uh, having been in cloud, um, I know from firsthand experience how capex influence your uh, PNL and the way that you're going to be able to build your product because basically everything is tied down. People tend to think about cloud as something that is uh, in the cloud. Actually, it's a very very <laughs> down to earth. Yes, it's a very down-to-earth motor, uh, you know, kind of business related. And so one of the things when working on that was basically, what about the incumbent? What about the people already there, already in place, already uh, having uh, the infrastructure and already optimizing and, you know, deprecating their hardware, deprecating the material that they have already bought? What about them? Because in a way, um, these kind of uh, market, as you said, because of the high capex price, it makes it, it it's it it makes it like very difficult to penetrate, and so there is very few player. It's not very highly fragmented, and so what about startups trying to break into this kind of new domain? How can they fight against that and against the weight of capital structure for them? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's something that we we think about a lot. And I think it's a industry by industry cases. I think there are some industries, some heavy industries. I'm thinking about, for example, the cement industry, where it's dominated by few players um, that have huge 
market caps that have a lot of cash and capital, spending quite a lot on R&D, and they also have a lot of lobbying power. So then it's around thinking about the right business model to compete in an industry that is that way. So perhaps instead of going head to head against incumbents, you want to have a technology that is complementary to them and they will buy. In some other industries, you may want to go head to head against incumbents because they're not spending enough in R&D and you perhaps want to start taking a lot of market share from them before partnering up. We, t- we tend to look at this from, like, as I said, an industry by industry perspective. So perhaps you're seeing in like new materials and new chemical space, there is the opportunity for companies leveraging Symbio to exist and, and come up. Perhaps in industries like cement or concrete, it's slightly different the way you want to interact. So that calls for a different business model. Yeah, totally get it. Do you have an example uh, at hand about uh, the two categories that you just mentioned? One where basically uh, you have an industry very heavily dominated by incumbent, but because of the lack of investment in R&D, a startup coming in uh, is able to challenge that, uh, you know, existing player and get back market shares. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I also think you, you mentioned... Uh, the government role. I do yeah. think because of the high capex need of a lot of those companies and uh, and the need to disrupt and to make a lot of those industries more sustainable, there really is a need for like bigger and more um, important government support to these companies, especially from like the capex and scale up perspective, because. Venture money can probably only get you to like your pilot, maybe your demo um, plant. But then when you try to go from demo to like a big commercial plant, there is a huge funding gap that at the moment, very few infrastructure and project um, development firms are, are funding because there's still a lot of risk. There's still a lot of technological risk, not as much as um, to go from lab to pilot, but still. Um, and I think this is exactly where government should play at, whether it's like an EU level, whether it's by a country level, there needs to be a lot of kind of pockets for, for companies to tap in, really, and the risk also um, the investments that venture capitalists are putting in the company. When, when you say that, what I hear is uh, what should be uh, the size of this envelope, you know, uh, because uh, having worked with uh, policymakers in, in Europe uh, and at a national level, uh, I'm always uh, intrigued about, okay, the need for establishing a budget on the whole that fits and that is very conducive of innovation. But then again, how this uh, budget uh, really, you know, compete uh, compared to to private capital, but coming from different market, because at the end of the day, uh, we are based in Europe, uh, working and operating uh, mainly in Europe. And even if we want to build not European uh, companies, but global companies able to to really take the space at the international level, we still have to play with these uh, initial conditions, and that means that. Uh, when the U.S., for example, for the bioeconomy, uh, decide to dedicate uh, one trillion plus dollars to the bioeconomy, uh, clearly uh, there's a difference in terms of 
I would say, investment power in between uh, us and uh, others. And uh, I'm thinking very specifically to the very highly criticized 380 uh, million envelope um, prepared by uh, the UK government for fostering, bolstering innovation. This has been very so highly criticized. And so I get it. But at the same time, if I just want to play the rules advocate and, and switch roles and put myself in the shoes of the policymakers, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, how can I make sure that the size of the envelope that I'm going to, to, to offer and prepare is uh, matching the reality of what, what our industry ecosystem, whether it is at UK level or European level needs? I think it, it boils down to a couple of things. The first one is an understanding of what it actually takes in terms of capital to build some of these projects in a way that they are big enough to shape an industry. So if you're doing a commercial plan for green chemicals, how much money would it actually take? And here we're not talking about like a couple of millions, we're talking about like large tens or more. Um, and understanding from, and, and the second point is understanding from like a policy perspective, why you're doing this, whether you're, you're doing this just to bolster innovation and to help the community, or whether you're doing this, and I think this is why the US is doing it, um, for more strategic long-term uh, reasons. I think when, you, when you're thinking about like the, the power of the bioeconomy and the potential of the bioeconomy, it's not just about building and creating and producing new things, new materials sustainably. That's one of the sides of the coin. The second is decentralizing and distributing supply chain. We've seen throughout COVID how a centralized supply chain can really impact the economy globally. And the potential of using cells of factory rather than um, concentrating a lot of the production in one part of the world, it's a strategic um, opportunity for various nations. So the size of the, the envelope, it's really down to why you're putting the, the envelope in place in the first place. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think maybe, maybe because I can reconnect with uh, what was done and what is being done on the AI and ethical uh, mm -hmm. user AI uh, policies. So we started, uh, I think, long before in Europe. I think uh, the, the genesis was around this idea of building as uh, a GDPR. It was very highly, highly criticized at the time. But I think that uh, although uh, the implementation can be uh, faulted in many ways, I think that it was just uh, a first milestone. The first milestone into pushes us then to the AI Act and everything that has been built around ever since. And it was very clear for me from the beginning that, you know, um, I heard Ursula von der Leyen said one thing and that one thing only kind of justified in a way, even though as someone that is um, having to deal with the implementation of this rule, I'm struggling with uh, the need for it. I can still see why with that just one sentence. She said, it's about preserving what makes the European Union uh, unique in its uh, view on the world and the value that we're protecting for us and the citizens. And I agree with that view because um, when I see how that is radically different in the US or even in, in China, I can have a sense of, you know, I'm proud of it, uh, to be European, to be honest, and I want to see it uh, defended. I want to see this value defended. But at the same time, as a technologist, 
I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because it becomes sometimes more kind of a um, a self, you know, a professed prophecy where uh, uh, no matter how much government money you're just like pouring into, you just can't keep up with the innovation sometimes and you just feel like you're just falling behind and losing the market. Yeah, I, I really, really agree with you. I think there's a sense perhaps in Europe that's slightly different from, as you mentioned, the US or, or the Far East, where we are very proud of our past and we know that our past can like keep on bringing us forward. But at the same time, that's that affects the slowness or that affects the speed of um, adopting innovation. And then can kind of put us on a different um, path than our counterparts. And I see this, an, an example that I always make is in the alternative reporting space. Yeah. And on one side, you have you know, countries like Singapore who have already um, given regulatory approval to cultivated meat. You have the US that's on a very fast path, um, their regulation for cultivated meat and alternative proteins a lot faster than what we have in um, the European Union with the novel foods. And, you know, there's two sides of the coin. One could say, well, how about all of the great um, European startups that are creating new ways of producing food uh, and need to wait like three to five years to get approval? But on the other side, um, you have a space, you have, you know, a collection of countries that have a lot of history related to food, related to farming, and huge economies that are dependent on these sectors, which also have a huge lobbying power. So how do you manage the need for speed of innovation and this more traditional type of industries that still shape a lot of the identity of the members' countries? And I don't know, my, my dad works in the feed industry in Italy. You can't get more anti-alternative protein than that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when you're saying, uh, uh, when you were saying uh, huge industry that just first power the uh, economy of the country, but then also mean that they have huge lobbying power. I was definitely thinking about uh, the example here that we have here called La Vie, where they're just like, uh, uh, they are fantastic. I mean, they they really played the underdog card to uh, the best of uh, what it meant. And they really totally managed to change the game. Their campaign are just impressive. And they managed very quickly, actually, to go from just idea to, to conception and then uh, reaching out to consumer. I'm going to make the, the, the link here because I think it's a nice transition. When I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, okay, this is different play because compared to traditional biotech startup, and that's uh, was what you were saying at the beginning, tech bio offer much, much more possibility. It's not just about drugs and therapeutics anymore. It's not just about potentially, because generally when uh, you were looking at the portfolio of investment firm in uh, biotech, it was like mainly drug and therapeutics, eventually venturing out of food and agriculture, a bit of uh, climate, uh, clean tech, sustainability, just like bordering around, but mainly. But Synthetic bio for this choice where you can be fashion tech, as you were mentioning uh, earlier, it can be cosmetic products. And so I think one of the things that um, was like this haha moment when I also liked you, just like started to discover synthetic biology was, okay, there's a play here in terms of business model, which is radically different because 
with um, drugs and therapeutics is mostly uh, a B2B play. So you need to be into that ecosystem. You need to go after the different supplier within uh, that workflow and value chain and see where you fit into that value chain to be able to create your niche and then basically manage the B2B sales lifecycle. But LaVi as a B2C, pure B2C play, really show the potential because suddenly company working on, for example, new kind of uh, cosmetic products based on bioengineer compounds, well, they can sell directly to the end consumer and they don't need to actually wait for a partner to be able to make that kind of play. So um, how was it from you transit, transiting from, okay, you arrived at Thales with this uh, huge background in clean tech, then discovering a synthetic biology and then now venturing into synthetic biology and scouting for companies and, and discovering a kind of a huge play. And like, it's it's um, Willy Wonka. Uh, <laughs> You like what I feel. It it is it is indeed. I think you mentioned you mentioned how like how people and entrepreneurs can really get creative in this field. As you said, you can be a B2B ingredients player, um, large and at scale, and change an industry. You can take some, I call them here ingredients. It's like collagen for cosmetics or I don't know, something else for textiles and create a brand again around that or you can be a platform player you can play horizontally and power the next generation of these businesses and help building the foundation so that you know in 10 years time you don't need to build a full stack company to go to market but you can take your strain engineered from that company and you can use your buyer reactors from this company and kind of build more um, of an ecosystem. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, I love what you mentioned around the consumer play because this is something I, I personally love, um, the consumer space, just, um, just personally. Um, but this is something that I'm seeing companies actually starting to do more and more because on one side, you want to, as, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of business model, yes, you can create, let's say, in the cosmetic space. Yes, you can create a hero ingredient, something um, produced by a cells that it's not using petrochemicals, that it's vegan, and then um, your Estee Lauder or some of those companies will want to buy. But there's also a, a different business model where you actually go to market yourself. You have the opportunity to see what customers want and say you can you know you can create a brand around it and then you can start partnering with the bigger distributors when you're in a position of bigger strength i think a company like checkerspot has done that they've built uh, skis and ski gears some really professional ski gears which is amazing from their technology with a view of showing to their potential partners that they already know what the customers wants that they're already selling and they're in just in a stronger position i do think it is hard you're not only trying to you know take an r&d innovation from academia create scale it out bring a product to market but you also need to to have a kind of the skill set and the team to create a brand and to acquire customers in an environment where it's not really that simple. Paid marketing doesn't work that well anymore. So it is a bigger challenge. 
But if if you you know it's so down to the founder and the team and their vision, uh, I think it's quite exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, of course every bias here. Uh, I used to be a chief product officer. I spent most of my my life thinking about products. I'm a, definitely a product person. I I'm basically someone who's pretty annoying to live with because whenever I'm with my partner, I'm just like, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen the product positioning? This is amazing, you know. So for me, branding is like this whole thing. But the thing is. As you said, it's not easy, specifically because these are teams of scientists. They are not coming from that world. They are coming from the academic world. And so this idea of building brand and building that brand strategy, I think it's something where they definitely have, the one that gets it, they definitely have uh, a really strong advantage. And as you said, it's like proving to your potential uh, customers at the end that, yeah, you understand what they are all about. You're trying to, to, to really position yourself as the expert and the key leader, opinion leader on this. One other thing is um, synthetic biology has been uh, thriving for some time now. What are the key trends that you see uh, happening and how does this affect you as you uh, as a, 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 at Thales Capital, the work that you're doing? There are a lot of trends. And if we're talking about just in bio or tech bio, I can, I can talk for days. I think um, on the tech bio side and what I like to call the engineer biology, there is a lot happening around large language models and protein design, protein engineering um, across mostly for the therapeutic space and the pharma space. But I, I can already see some of this work uh, transcending into the synthetic biology space, which is very, very exciting because that's going to change the speed of development and the cost of development of everything, just from how fast you can um, you can find new candidates. And it, it will reduce the strain on high throughput um, testing, which I think is fascinating. There's a lot happening in the bioinformatics space. We are getting more, more and more data uh, and it's going to be like hard larger and wider data sets to analyze. So that's a space that we also find very exciting. And then a third space that we like quite a lot is anything around lab automation. I think it's uh, only after you visit some labs with very naive non-scientist eyes, you just think like, wow, why why are the some of the cleverest people on the planet just pipetting their way through the days? Yeah. Um, and I think we have reached certain level of automation and innovation in other industries like manufacturing. And I think a lot of the technology can be applied onto the lab space and create like a faster, better um, environment for scientists to kind of spend more of their time designing experiments as opposed to actually running them. Um, in the synthetic biology space, um, there's been, I think the sector that's most advanced, it's uh, the alternative product sector. I think that's why we've seen a lot of innovation, a lot of capital going towards. I see now in terms of runner-ups, the material space, and with materials, I mean anything from um, chemicals to um, textiles, to like hard advanced materials for consumer electronics, um, cosmetics, fuels. It's always been a theme that's kind of up and coming. And then the third that I'm seeing 
a lot of companies coming into is the agricultural space. I think we are realizing that um, the issues that we have with food production are not just going to be solved with uh, better like alternative proteins, but we need to tackle agriculture as a sector. We need to tackle fertilizers and we need to tackle our dependency with ammonia. <laughs> I think I feel I'm looking at the clock right now. I'm thinking, oh my God, this this discussion could go on forever. I have so many questions I want to open, but I'm going to be uh, civilized. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Thales. Uh, let's talk about uh, Thales as a firm um, and its history, where you are right now uh, in your firm and what you are, are planning. And then we talk a little bit more about your process investment and what should founders know. Of course. Yes. Yeah, so Thales has been around for over 12 years. We are a firm based in London and we focus on investing at seed and series A across the US and Europe. We are a fairly small investment team. There's six of us. And we, we, our philosophy of investing is that of high conviction. So we only tend to do maybe five to seven investments every year, which is quite low. And we tend to lead or co-lead those investments. And partners only sit on six to eight active boards at once. And that's because we really, really value working deeply with our founders. And you can only do that when you have time to, to spend with them. So the way we partner with our founders, it's really varied. That could be helping them hiring and spending a lot of time doing interviews with them, helping them with product debugs and product circles, helping them, introduce, introducing them to some of the you know, great advisors and great people that we have in our networks, um, helping them with fundraising. But it, we are very active with them. Um, and the way we operate, we are a generalist fund. So over the years, we've been lucky enough to partner with category-defining companies like Carta in the US in the fintech space, Dark Trace in the UK um, doing cybersecurity, Onfidos in the UK for identity verification, Insect and uh, Sequera in the bioinformatics space, and many others. Um, and as a generalist firm, we tend to look at a variety of sectors at once, from tech infrastructure to consumer internet to uh, climate and sustainability. And what we focus on within the sector is very much driven by the investment team and our own passion. So the reason I'm spending a lot of time in Symbio and climate and tech bio is because I love it and I'm hugely passionate about it. And there are other members of the team who are as passionate as me, but on machine learning operation and DevOps or insure tech and finance. And I love them and respect them for it. Um, and I think it's just the, our ethos. We, we want to work with people that are building in spaces that we love as much as them. Oh, amazing. I totally uh, connect to that. A uh, team of passionate people, uh, a firm is brand new. Uh, we've been only incorporated uh, last year and we're still in a process right now. So I think that most of the work that we're doing is really trying to keep in touch with the founders and trying to really bring value to the founder. And I think that maybe uh, the reason for that is having been a founder myself, I can totally um, empathize with how hard it is. I'll see this amazing team trying to build something sometime kind of counter, totally counterintuitive and totally crazy. 
and they need the support and it's not just about the financial investment personally i think there is much much more that can be given yeah yeah and i think it's what makes our you know our days worth um for me it's seven new opportunity and being lucky to to work really closely with people who are trying to build something huge um and it's stability of you know putting myself in their hands and being like okay what do you need what do you want me to do okay I go and do it for you how can I actually really help you and you can only do that when you when you're as passionate as them in the area in which you're building in yeah definitely so one last word uh before we go uh if you had uh, one advice I would give to founders trying to reach out to you or to Thales uh, how can they put their best foot forward and what they should be uh, focusing about? Yeah, well, my LinkedIn DMs, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but they're open. Uh, people can always reach out. I think it's, um, sorry, it's very, very helpful when founders have a really clear idea on you know, why they're raising now and what's the problem uh, that they're solving, but also how. And I, I focus a lot on the power of storytelling. Um, you need to have like a clear, cohesive story. And technology is really important. Science is really important, but that's not just, that's not the whole pitch. Um, your whole pitch shouldn't just be 90%. This is the great technology that we build, but it should focus on why is this, $10 billion company in, I don't know, 10 years time. Um, especially technical founders tend to overemphasize on their technology. Yeah. And again, we're going to spend a lot of time diving deeper in your technology. But you're not going to get there if you don't, if you don't help us dream yeah. about what this can, can be, not beyond the technology from like a company and business level. But Cecilia, the tech is so great. <laughs> I know, and I and I'm a nerd, and I'm a geek, and I spend hours thinking about that. But uh, unfortunately, um, not all great technology innovation turn into great companies, and we want we want founders who are able to transition from you know being academic to being founders and being managers of big businesses, and we are trying to. To look for that innate commercial acumen um so that spans beyond the technology and also quick tip as a founder you need to be able to you know talk about your technology as if you're talking to your mother or your grandma, <laughs> grandmother or you know kindergarten kid um not because you know we, we use a lot of experts to assess technologies but when you're thinking about like storytelling and moving beyond technical VCs and into like wider pools of capital, you need to be able to switch from super nerd geek gear to talking to everybody. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia, for this amazing podcast. I'm just like super excited to be publishing this. Your <laughs> people are going to love it. We are uh, very active in Tech Bio, of course. This is basically how we got connected. So yeah. I'm looking forward to all the uh, exchange, crazy thing that we could do together. So thank you to you. Uh, thank you for having me and for all the great work that you're doing on the Tech Bio space. So love to work, <laughs> work with you. Thank you, Cecilia. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nexicon podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the letters from us, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.